Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We're going to pivot back to where we have been spending a great deal of the year, which is in the Gospel of Luke. Our last series was more thematic, which is fun from time to time. But most of the time around here, what we do, our MO, is we open up a passage of Scripture, we read it, we study the context, what's happening in this context, this space and time. We try to learn from God, learn from Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. We try to listen and respond to the Holy Spirit on what the Holy Spirit might have for us in light of this teaching today. And so... Um, We're going to do that this morning. We're going to go deep into the passage that Kelly just read. But in order to do that well, it's really important to stay within the context of the broader thing that's happening. Because there's great beauty in going deep into a piece of scripture that maybe if you're a reader of devotionals in the morning, you might read that and be like, yes, I know that. And then check for today, which is okay. It's good. Thank goodness we're in the word, right? But sometimes when we take a passage only, we forget the ark. And so because we've been out of Luke for a few weeks, I'm going to take a moment and remind us of the ark of how we got to today's passage and this ruler uh, approaching Jesus. So um, before I do that, let me just pray for for a moment and um, yeah, God, this week there's just been so many things uh, connecting and moving around in my mind and my heart about this passage. So um, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way, that you would clarify my words. And if you have uh, some direction that you want emphasis on, that you would just, um, yeah, take the reins of my mouth and of everyone's ears and hearts to have your way in this space this morning. I thank you and honor your presence in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so here we go. The Ark. I got to back it up a little bit, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to do some Pillman paraphrase along the way to get us caught up to where we are this morning. So back in Luke 17, uh, chapters 20 and 21, we start a new um, episode of teaching. You know, one time this happened, and then we don't have an indication that that episode of teaching has broken all the way up through where we are today. So starting in 17, 20 to 21, once... That's the new, like, once, once this happened, and the ark starts. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. So here we are, subject, Pharisees are very informed, faithful Jewish people who want to get it right are asking Jesus about the coming future kingdom of God. That's our context. And from here, we get this group of teaching. And we have to imagine that we have the followers of Jesus who are listening and learning and what this guy, what's this guy up to? And we have the Pharisees who asked the original question. And so that's still happening. So now back it up in our community, back to like mid-August, all of our sermons, if you want to get any of these, they're on our website. There's a link in our newsletter. Um, on August 21, we talked about the persistent widow, that parable when Jesus was saying uh, there was a persistent widow, widow and a judge who didn't care what man or God thought about him and all of that. Um, and the message there was that God will grant justice for those who persist, but the justice will come in its fullness, again, with the eventual coming of God's kingdom. How will you live while you wait? That's what we talked about in light of that one. When the son of man returns, will he find faith? 
in the waiting. That was the persistent widow. And he goes straight from there to a parable about a Pharisee praising God for how good he is. Thank you, God, that I'm so awesome. And the tax collector saying, forgive me, God, I'm a sinner. That was August 28th. And so God, uh, Jesus says, which one went home justified? Like justified before God, insured of future salvation. And, and it was the one who was humble. And there we see in 18, uh, chapter 18, 14, those who exalt themselves, like the Pharisee, will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted again in the coming kingdom. So we haven't lost our arc of what we're talking about. And we keep the ark under our same umbrella here because we still are talking about this idea of eventual fulfillment of God's kingdom, future salvation, who's in? Who is this for? What's it gonna be like? So we pick up from that place. We're not gonna pluck today out of context because, well, anyway, that would be confusing. So keep it in context. And we're gonna read what happens just before what Kelly read this morning. So um, again, to keep context going. And this is really important for this stretch of Jesus's teaching. I'm gonna pick up, so the, those, the, the persistent widow and the Pharisee and the tax collector parables just happened. And then this was like a real life encounter that happened next. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. The fam but Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God. Remember the theme of what we're talking about is this kingdom. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then we go into our passage where he's approached by this, uh, this ruler, this young ruler. So, Remembering what we're talking about, eternal kingdom, kingdom of God belongs to such as these, and then here approaches this person who we collectively often will refer to as the rich young ruler. I just want to acknowledge really quickly that um, that title that we have given him is actually a compilation. This encounter between Jesus and this gentleman is recorded in three of the four gospel accounts of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And we have different pieces uh, that put together that title that we call him. So Mark calls him a rich man. Matthew calls him rich and young, and Luke is the one who presents him as a rich ruler. Now, does this mean that something's off here, that he doesn't have the same title everywhere? And no. And so for those of you who might be newer, if you've been around, you've heard me say this, but it's always important that we remember the nature of the Bible that we are reading, right? And so uh, the fact that everything, the, the encounter is clearly the same. The dialogue is very much the same. Why aren't they all exactly the same? What's, who's right? right? But I want to remind us the gospels are basically um, similar to the way that we may all attend the same wedding or the same event, right? We have different people taking accounts of what happened and putting them to writing so that faithful followers in the future can still know these things. What happens if the words aren't the same or the way that something's articulated or this information about this young man isn't exactly the same? Well, if we attended the same wedding, we'd highlight different things about that event, wouldn't we? Some things would matter more to one person than to another. You might go up to a friend afterwards and say, I met this person, Melissa. She's a mom and a stepmom. And you might say, I met this pastor named Melissa. And you might say, I met this woman who built a business with her husband. Her name's Melissa. Those things would all be true. No one's wrong. 
They're different facets of the same person or the same story, right? And so same thing with like the young ruler. Was that really important? I don't know his age, you guys. All I know is that around here sometimes, I've literally been approached and said, I need to meet with someone older. And I'm like the oldest person here almost sometimes. And so they're like, can I meet with you? I need someone older older. I'm like, yes. However, when recently I was in medical settings for something that usually happened to people about 30 years older than me, every single person kept going, you're so young. Why are you here? And I'm like, yes, I am. That's right. Because my church all says I'm old and I don't mind. I don't. It's relative. I don't think that the either and none of these pieces matter. But to Luke, something mattered that he was a ruler. It probably refers to some social influence, some significance in the community, perhaps in the synagogue. Again, the details aren't what matters. It's that to Luke, he is seeing a clear kind contrast socially to the children who are just hanging out with Jesus. So he's emphasizing the ruler, or he says he's a ruler because that's just a fact, but we see in here a social difference that is noteworthy in these two exchanges back to back. So what we're going to do now is we're going to study a couple of notes about their exchange because there's a lot here. Because this young ruler says, good teacher, That's how he approaches them. That seems like a kind thing to say, right? That doesn't seem like a big deal. But what Jesus replies is, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, this has caused a lot of angst or consternation for a lot of people. Like, this is Jesus, the son of God, the most good. We sing, you are good, good, so good. Like, what do you mean that Jesus is saying he's not good? Did I get something wrong? There's been a lot of thought about this. I'm going to just, in case there's any questions, does this mean Jesus doesn't think he's good himself? I would say no. I'm going to just say my take on this, number one, um, is that I I would go along with Luke Timothy, Timothy Johnson just said it better, but this is where I kind of think. Jesus, his response here is the reflex deflection of human praise in favor of God as the source of all being and goodness. Now, is Jesus also God's self? Yes. Is he also part of the source of all goodness? Absolutely. But in this passage, the concept of the source is going to become important. And so it's like Jesus is teeing that up. What is the one source of all goodness? Second of all, I would say this. I don't think that this is the most important thing about what Jesus is saying. So this does not derail my train. However, I honor for some people, this is very derailing that Jesus says, why do you call me good? And so we can talk further. I can give you more thoughts. But I think that what's happening is he's saying, let's keep our eye on the source of ultimate goodness. And for this encounter, I believe Jesus knows he needs to keep the eye on God. We bring it up here. If this does not derail your train, like fantastic. I just acknowledge it derails some trains. And I like for us to sit here and acknowledge when there are chin scratchers in scripture because we're not afraid of scratching our chin sometimes. So it's weird that Jesus would say I'm not good, except in my opinion that he is favoring, he is emphasizing God is the source. And we need to keep our eye on that ball in this conversation that's coming up. So when we go on, he says, um, hold on. He says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God. You know the commandments. Because he's just said, what do I need to do to gain eternal life, right? So Jesus goes on. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. That's his list that he gives here. Now, an interesting thing to note about the things that Jesus lists in this encounter. 
the ones that Jesus has picked are all about the relationships among people, right? A little 10 commandments 101. The first group are all about your relationship with God. The last group are all about our relationships with one another. In the center as a bridge is the Sabbath law, okay? Because that's when I teach more about that when we're talking about Sabbath. But so they're, they're grouped, right? And Jesus decides to pick the group that has to do with relationship, the community aspect, how we are one anothering in language that we use around here sometimes. Why is that important? Because when Jesus says later on, could you give away everything for the poor? It's not just for your own aesthetic lifestyle. He's saying like, could you towards relationship for others? So he's emphasizing here the commandments that have to do with our life together for one another. And so that is really, I think, an interesting point in the ones that Jesus happens to pick, knowing where this story is going. And the guy responds like, yeah, I have kept all of these since I was a boy. Verse 21. Now, here in 2022, this is where our social red flags go up and we're like, what a pompous jerk, (laughs) right? Like who would sit there to Jesus Christ, son of God, and be like, I do it perfectly. All of this I have done so, so well. And so our social flags go up, but this is what I want us to pause for two quick moments because this is why context is so important. Number one, we talked about keeping the broader arc, not plucking out scripture. Number two is understanding context. Cultural context matters so much when we're studying scripture, you guys, because it's culturally for them completely normal to speak this way. This does not sound like a self-promoting bragger to them. And there are moments when we learn about culture where we could kind of be like, yeah, I don't get it, but we don't have to get it. It's not about us getting it. It's about learning it so we can at least appreciate some differences. So people who study such things as culture and social dynamics and all of this, they say that that ancient Near East culture is what's called an honor and shame culture. They would maybe name our culture a relevance culture. It's just the currency of our days. So what I mean by that, for ours, relevance culture, what matters in our social hierarchy or social currency, the number of likes, your social platform, your breadth of influence, youth, the relevance goes with youth. It, we are not known for elevating sage wisdom of the elderly as a society, I would say that I don't think that's true in this community as much, but I just want to say, as a society, we are known to be really, really excited for somebody's flash in the pan, 15 minutes of fame, and then they can be gone. And we're fine with that because we're on to the next relevant thing. So that's what our society kind of is more into, right? They were an honor and shame culture. So your honor is your social currency. That's why shame spread to a whole family and was like undoing you if shame were to come onto your family. And so in that society, you could spend your honor like we would spend our platform. And that was totally normal uh, if you happen to have a platform, right? And so for this setting, him to say, here's who I am. I'm an honorable person. I'm a faithful Jew. Um, And I think that that's pretty important for you to know as we engage in this conversation. That was normal. That was not bragging. That's like, here's where we are. Here's who I am. Okay, good to know each other a little bit. 
So the second thing I would say about this being a strangely bragging concept to us, um, I can't recall, I wish I could tell you the professor or the author where I first read this. It struck me. This was not my original thought, but it struck me so, how's that for a citation, right? Somebody else said this first. In the Jewish culture, the Jewish people accepted their right standing with God because they trusted God's system of sacrifice, purification, and atonement as being the system that did what God said it did. And so they would accept, yeah, I'm in right standing with God because I trust the system as a faithful Jewish person. So maybe it is true this guy never murdered anyone or committed adultery, uh, but as a faithful Jew, he would know that he was not holy in and of himself. So that's not what he's saying that he along with everyone else does in fact sin. I grabbed a couple of verses really quick here. Second Chronicles, he would have known his scriptures, right? He is, he is a faithful person. Second Chronicles 6.36, these would have been part of his holy scriptures. We call it the Old Testament. It's his holy scriptures. There is no one who does not sin. That's a part of that verse. Like there's no one who doesn't. Uh, Psalm 14.3, all have turned away from God. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And as a faithful Jew, even though this wasn't written yet for him to be quoting it, he would know along with Paul, another very faithful Jewish man, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now listen, this isn't meant to be a bummer, you guys. This man knew this and it's just a reminder, hey, we all need the mercy of God. I don't think he's pompous at all. I don't think he's saying he's perfect. He would know these truths about humanity and God. I think he's saying he keeps the system that God assigned for purification. He keeps up with it and that keeps him clean before the father. So there is in this group, uh, in this society, this Jewish culture, there is a sin reset system. That is not a biblical name. That is a Melissa Pillman name for it, but it's like a sin reset button that you could push. It was clearly laid out. He's faithful and he trusts the system because it's been provided for obviously imperfect people, they accepted this. And so he's a faithful Jew and he trusts in the sin reset system. Now, we're gonna get back to that. And so I'm gonna put a pin in it. And at this point, the aesthetically talented people and graphic designers in my midst are cringing because you don't even wanna know how long it took me. But do you ever put a sticky on your computer because you don't trust your brain? I want you guys to know like, this is the sticky on your desktop of your computer. We're coming back. This is important. So we're putting a pin in it, literally. And I don't trust my brain, so I keep them on my desktop until I can resolve them. It's staying on our desktop until we can resolve this idea. We're coming back to it. Next, but we're gonna keep moving in the moment. Jesus says to this man, give away everything to the poor. He's wealthy. He can't do it, won't do it, whatever. And he's sad. That's how this story goes on. And this is where everyone gets a little squirmy, or at least a lot of people do. And we start to think, does this mean we're supposed to give away everything? Well, not necessarily. Jesus doesn't tell everybody to give away everything. That's not a universal command that Jesus is now saying. However, don't let that be a pass for us not to wrestle with the fact that Jesus does say it here. He looks to someone and he says it. There's something going on. So we have to consider what would Jesus say to us? He did say that. So we have to sit with discomfort. One of the things we might say is, well, I'm not wealthy. 
I just want to remind us, you guys, that is such a subjective concept. It's so subjective. There is always someone wealthier. There's always someone wealthier. And so it's really hard. I tried to look into some stats to try to give us an idea of like, how do we even put our brain around this relative subjective concept of wealth? None of them were helpful. There were a ton. They weren't helpful though, because in the United States, our wealth disparity, is that the right word? Disparity is so off. It's so broken that there's nothing that would literally say this. So I'm gonna say this. For those who have access to more than what they need to survive in our world, it's okay if you're a little uncomfortable with this, this moment, with this saying, okay? And so many of us have access for more than what we need to survive and it's okay to pause. So here's what Jesus says next. And we're gonna, we're gonna keep on going and we're gonna allow ourselves, if you're someone who has access, if you don't have this is what I do when I'm pausing outside of the sermon for a second. If you in any way do not have access to the things that you need for the basics of your health and survival, please reach out. We have a community fund designed specifically for that because we believe that the church is supposed to meet those needs. Okay, but for those of us who have access, it's okay to be a little uncomfortable for a minute here. Okay, verse 25, Jesus says this, indeed it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now when I was reading a bunch of commentaries, which is part of what I make sure to do so that I know context, that I don't assume things, a lot of them talked about, apparently there was an era of time where it was being taught like there was a gate called the gate of the needle and the camels would need to sort of bow humbly to fit through it because it was smaller. Every single commentary said there is absolutely no proof in literature or architecture or archeology span or anything that we found for such a gate. So just go ahead and squirm a second. This is an idiom. A camel is the largest animal in Palestine and we all know the size of an eye of a needle. This is an idiom to mean it's impossible. Just, we got to accept that. That's what Jesus has said. So we are going to be uncomfortable for a second, and we're going to put a pin in it. Huh? But we are going to allow that to be uncomfortable for a minute. And don't worry, I'm not going to do any more pins than that. But we have to keep them on our desk pad, our desktop, whatever, because um, we're going to return. But first, here's what I want us to do. I want us to circle back to our context. Where have we just come from? We've come from encounters with children. I love the kids are here today. This is so, so good. So remember, we've just been highlighting this dichotomy by chance of situation. Kids versus royal young no, rich young ruler, excuse me, in the social order. Complete dichotomy, other way. You know, complete dichotomy of social order value has already been established. But I want to stop and suggest two things that strike me about the kids versus the rich young ruler. And I'll do this quick, but I'm gonna have a mom moment. I'm gonna share two stories about my kids, but listen, this is not me just being like, yay, fun mom pastor illustrations. I'm not doing it like that, I promise. What I'm doing is saying that God, without a doubt, has taught me powerfully using the Holy Spirit in my spirit, using the vessel of my children. And so what I wanna say to you is this, please do not limit how the Holy Spirit can teach you, be it through a child, be it through uh, creation, 
I mean, be wise. Don't have to listen and trust everybody and everything you hear, but we will not limit who can be the vessel of teaching because it's the Holy Spirit who's doing the teaching. I am humbly sharing two moments where I was in the learner seat and my kids were like, Holy Spirit vessels straight to my heart. I'll try to go fast. Number one, Forrest, our youngest, now 15, was probably like late toddler, little kid, any case, still in a booster seat. I'm driving up to, I'm way up in northern, northern Michigan, going to see my parents, and I've got Gigi and Forrest in the back seat. Awful storm comes. I can't see, you guys. I cannot even see the white line on the side. You know when the weather's bad and you're like, at least I can keep even with the line? I couldn't even see the white line. I was freaked out, but I was thinking I was being a great mom and being like, I'm gonna hide it from them. If you know me, I don't hide well, and my kids know this especially, so I'm sure they were a little freaked out too. I got really quiet. I couldn't even pull to the side of the road and wait because you couldn't see a car, even with, we all had our hazards on, right, going slow. You couldn't see a car in front of you until you were right up on it. And so if you go to the side of the road, you run a major risk of just being rear-ended. So I had to keep going, and there's big spaces between exits. I'm in northern Michigan, and so I'm a little white-knuckled, but I'm super focused, and all of a sudden the weather completely completely clears up, like completely. I'm not saying there were rainbows or anything, but like I could see everything. The roads were fine again. It was amazing. And I took a couple deep breaths and I was so thankful. And so I voiced to the kids how thankful I was to God that that cleared. And Forrest, by this point, was already in the back seat, like flipping through a book or whatever. And they were like, yeah, I know, I prayed. I asked God to clear up the weather and just was on to the next thing. And I was like, what? It's so true. And I'm not saying like that they thought they had some magic power or something, but kids are fine to be in a point of utter dependence where with nowhere else to go but to trust in God. They're fine with it. They're little. They can't tie their shoes. They can't reach the oatmeal. They are so used to being dependent, you guys, like 24-7. I can't see over this fence. They just put out their arms and know that someone's going to pick them up. A second side thing. I'm going to assume in this illustration that there are parents who are meeting the basic needs of their children. This is not the case in abuse or neglect. And again, I want to acknowledge that if that is your story, please step in imagination into this with an assumption that someone's going to reach your oatmeal for you. But if that hasn't been your story, we care. And we have resources to help even in like a processing through the trauma of that. But our conversation now is going to... D- Uh, assume that the posture of a child can put out their arms and know someone's going to lift them to see over the fence. That's an assumption that we're going to make in this story. They are so used to being utterly dependent. And I think that the rich young ruler had come to rely on his own ability, including his ability to enter into the system of the sin reset system, right? But also his uh, ability to achieve influence to achieve honor among his community, to achieve wealth. He had become really aware that He's doing a pretty good job at it. And so his self-sufficiency made dependence hard. So that's the first one, is the dependence of a child. No problemo asking for the big, because that's how I get stuff done. I depend on other people. Number two, Gigi. Gigi's in preschool over at Blaine, and the moms or dads come after half day, and you have their kid released to you, and you're in a little park, and it's fenced in, and the kids always love to stay and play for a while, and that's great. Get your energy out. We're going home for lunch and naps, right? So I go, I pick up Gigi, and she goes running to want to play with all of her friends, and I say, sorry, honey, we can't play today. This is not normal. So she stops at me, and she says, why not? 
And if you're a parent, you know, you don't give more information than you need to. Only answer the exact question if it's not something that you want to be sharing more about, right? So it's like, we just can't today. Why not? We have an appointment. With who? With the doctor. Why? You need your flu shot. She knew she was healthy, but Gigi suffered asthma as a child. Thank God she grew out of it. And so she had to go get this shot. She hated shots. It's right down the bloodline. I do too. I'm a fainter. And so I just told her like, no, we have to go and do this. And I sat there and I braced myself because I'm like, she's going to bolt. It's, the place is swimming with kids and parents and mayhem and fun. And I have this image like I'm going to have to chase her down and we have to go. We're going to be late. And instead she sits there and her little lip starts quivering. You know that? look and her eyes fill up with tears and she runs directly into my arms and she just starts hugging me and she puts her arms up and I take her into the car and I take her and I was so humbled in that moment you guys because here's the other thing there is so much trust of a child who has been in safety with their loving parent or their loving God there's so much trust the rich young ruler went away sad because he was trusting in the uncertainty of wealth. Remember the justice creed or the generosity creed we just said, instead of fixing his hope on God. And we know, I love how Eugene Peterson in in Romans eight, he says it this way, uh, starting in verse 15, I'm just gonna read a little bit. The resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid grave tending life. It's an adventurous expectant greeting God with a God like, what's next Papa? It's a trust that's beyond what we know. When Gigi ran into my arms and trusted me, even though she hated the news that I had just brought, I see the rich, like, rich young ruler saying, I want that hug, but that's too high a cost. Versus a child who can say, I, yuck, gross, I hate what we're doing, but I'm gonna trust you and I'm gonna run into your arms and I'm gonna do this thing because I think that what you have must be what I need, but yuck. I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, let's go. That's the posture of a child, right? That's trust. So with these kid lessons, dependence and trust, I wanna go back to our pins a second. Regarding the impossible pin, it's not that there's some line of wealth at which salvation is impossible. There is a heart posture of trust and dependence in God over wealth that matters to God. And I think Jesus is saying that it is better to to illustrate it, this trust and dependence, that heart posture is better illustrated in the lives of children than by somebody who's self-sufficient. Yusto Gonzalez, building on this theme, says this, remembering the ark that we're in, right? The Pharisee in the previous parable trusted his piety, his how good he was before God, right? The ruler trusts his money and power. Both must be undone if salvation is to come to them, which can sometimes make wealth a stumbling block to salvation. But for the wealthy to get in the kingdom via self-sufficiency is impossible. Pin two, but Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. He undoes all of the things that would be otherwise impossible. Only God can make this possible. The people who overheard this asked, who then can be saved? Because it's kind of like, well, I mean, if that guy's not in, what in the world, right? And that's when Jesus replies, what is impossible with man for any of us is possible with God. So we resolve that pin. And now to the sin reset system. The thing that we are learning here through this course on uh, the kingdom 
coming here, right? Jesus brings free and total and undeserved grace and forgiveness. And I think it is sometimes hard to trust and depend on that because for us, the math doesn't make sense. For the rich young ruler, he knew this math of I do something bad and I bring you a lamb and we've just done an exchange and something made more sense, which is great. That was God's system for a long time and that was good. And the rich ruler could, he could touch it, taste it, feel it, see it, hear it. He could trust in that. But here he comes and asks, what must I do to earn eternal life? So even trusting in that system, you guys, he still is asking the core question, how can I earn it? So he's trusting in a system that still has him striving in his own doing to get to where Jesus is offering. So Jesus' response goes far beyond ethical rules to represent all-encompassing personal commitment, right? Are you all in with trust and dependence? Are you willing to let go of anything and say, yep, I am all in for this upside-down kingdom way of life? Because it's only gonna come by divine grace, not by that system anymore. Nobody enters through their efforts or assets. Only God can do this. Are you ready to open your hands and hold loosely all the things that you have? Because in trust and dependence, you'll say, yeah, I'm all in for this upside down way that only comes through Jesus. So our response, like the children's, would be, okay, Jesus, I trust you and depend on you like a child. I'll hold out my hands. You're offering me a free gift of grace? Cool. But it's so hard for us to do that, isn't it? It's hard for us to just accept it for what it is. I'm gonna read as, I, I promise I'm getting towards my point here. I'm gonna read quickly from James 1, 5 to 11. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. It will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Hear that as the opposite of trust and dependence, right? You need to believe or the in line with that. Trust and dependence. You must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do, right? Like I'm depending on something else. I say I trust you, but I really trust in what I have, rich and ruler. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. That's the upside down kingdom, right? The whole reversal. But the rich... The wealthy, like um, Jesus was referring to, impossible only except through God can the rich enter. But so the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Hear the heart posture here? They will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plants. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. The same, the rich will fade away even when they go about their business. The heart posture of the wealthy, it's okay to have access if you are ready to say, I can live with this wealth in a posture of humility, knowing that this isn't the end game. I will fade. This will fade. All of this will fade. My money isn't what lasts. What I'm in is for the kingdom permanence of what Jesus is ushering in. So if I know that what I have access to is fleeting, then that means that I can live humbly focused on a treasure, a true treasure that will not decay kingdom treasure that will shine in the age to come. If my heart posture is there, the wealthy can hold what they have here and now loosely with God honoring willingness to use it in response to the Holy Spirit's prompting in whatever case may be necessary. Wisely, with God-minded stewardship, stewardship, right? 
but they're, what are they grasping? What are we, we who have more in our cabinets than we need today, what are we grasping? We're grasping onto the kingdom promises of what is to come. We grasp towards a future and we hold what we have here knowing that this is treasure that will decay. So let me just use it like stuff that's not gonna be here forever because my eye is on the thing that will not decay, the thing that is to come. The disciples after hearing this ask, what about us? We've left everything and followed you. Like, aren't we in the best shape? Because we did what you just asked him to do. Like, what about us? And Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who's left home or wife or brothers or sister or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come in eternal life. Now, this is really important because understood wrongly, this sounds a lot like a prosperity gospel. It sounds like give it up now and you'll have extra later. And that's not what this is saying. I mean, who wants more wives, right? Like he says here, you'll have more if you've given up. I don't want like more kids or more husbands or more. Like it's not just about getting more of what Jesus just listed. That's not what it's saying. What he's saying is not a prosperity gospel. Give up so that I someday will be wealthier. He's saying, if you are willing to hold things, then you get to experience the kingdom here while you're waiting for the kingdom still to come. How's that gonna happen? Your family, you know, wives, children, whatever other things, mothers, brothers, sisters, your family will expand. This, your, fa- your family, church, will expand to so much more. Your home, where you feel home, where your heart is at home, expands to so much more. You will have a wider community, a wider family, a wider um, at-homeness in this world where we are now because our heart will be more linked to a kingdom that is calling us. All of creation is groaning with longings for that which is still to come, right? We get to link up in our heart and feel more at home because we're in the kingdom in breaking moments. I didn't know which way this is going to go. So I'm just going to put this aside. The moments that we get to know that you guys listen, we get to get so much more now when then, then, then just the things of this world. When we enter in and we say, I want to be part of something larger in the here and now. And someday that's going to be perfection of our community life together and of our tilling of the soil. Someday all of that will be perfect. But for now, we're given just enough for what we need in our pockets to be living into moments of that in this space where we are today. And so this isn't about a line of wealth. This is about things that are only possible with God. And they are possible with God. If we can receive them as the free gift that they are and say, Lord, how do I engage here with full expectancy, knowing that the fullness that is to come is something that I can hang my hat on with the trust and dependence of a child. And I think that that's what our rich young ruler went away sad because he didn't know how to reconcile these things. And I think that Jesus has made made a way for us to be able to reconcile them and to just say, thank you, Jesus. Like guide us in all we do. Jesus, I thank you that you've said that there, there actually is a way for all of us, uh, a way that's possible only with God. And I thank you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you have made that way open to us. And I confess my own hesitancy sometimes in knowing how to grasp it and saying, yes, I, I say yes, I wanna depend on this. 
I remember myself as a child just saying, did I do it right? Did I say it right? I don't feel different. And so um, Jesus, I just say like, help, help us, help us to come to you like children with trust and dependence on you fo- first and foremost, so that everything else that we have or do or um, share is just all in response to what you're calling us to here today. We trust you and ask you to continue to guide us in our time together this morning. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.